Disasters, True Stories, narrated by Brad Carty. The Sinking of the Erica, One Oil Spill Too Many. Is this the result of chance, a curse, or a sea tired of so much traffic? For decades, Brittany has had the sad habit of seeing ships run aground not far from its coasts. The Olympic bravery, and then the Berlin in 1976, and the Amoco Cardiz two years later. All these tankers were battered by storms, suffered from boiler or rudder failure, and ended up sinking off the peninsula. Each time, the consequences were disastrous. Oil slicks were spilled on the beaches, rocks, and cliffs. Its inhabitants put on boots and oilskins, took shovels, and cleaned their coastline before the ocean brought the next disaster. On December 8, 1999, it was the Erica's turn to take this route. A tanker flying the Maltese flag, a 25-year-old veteran, 600 feet long, and carrying 31,000 tons of fuel oil in its 14 holds. It left Dunkirk, crossed the English Channel, passed the Ushant Rail, and reached the Atlantic in one piece. It then headed south to Milazzo, Sicily, where the cargo needed to be delivered. There is no need to prolong the suspense any further. The Erica would never see the tip of the Vesuvio. On December 11, 1999, at 2.11 p.m., the Regional Monitoring and Rescue Operational Center, or CROS, received a distress call by Telex from the Erica, located at 186 miles from Brest. The vessel was being healed by a heavy swell, listing dangerously to starboard, and a rebalancing maneuver was underway. The Kras tried to establish contact with the tanker, but was unable to do so. Twenty minutes later, they received a new message from the Erica, stating that the situation was finally under control. No assistance was requested, and the information was confirmed at 3 o'clock p.m. by radio telephone. The Fort George, a British battleship, even approached to offer assistance, but its proposal was declined. However, at the end of the day, the vessel suddenly changed direction without warning the authorities and set out to reach the port of Donch in the Loire-Atlantique region within 24 hours. In reality, the damage was much more serious, and the captain did not mention it. Three cracks were digging into the deck plating. Warned afterwards of its arrival and fearing its fuel leaks, Donch refused to receive the tanker and proposed a diversion to Brest. During the night, the sea became rougher, the cracks got worse, and the Erica, ungovernable, had no choice but to reach the nearest port at all costs. Her captain abdicated the next day at 5.54 a.m., and halfway there asked the Cross to evacuate the vessel. While the rescue organization was being set up, the tanker gave way and folded in two like a hinge. From its broken hull, a geyser of oil gushed out, like a bloodletting. At 8.20 a.m., the rescue team flew over the Erica, or rather what was left of it, in a helicopter. The bow was practically submerged, with only the tip of the bow pointed upwards over the waves. The stern was still floating, saved by its superstructure, where all the crew members had taken refuge. Many of them were airlifted, 
and others boarded a lifeboat, and, within a few hours, the twenty-six sailors were evacuated safe and sound. In the afternoon, the Prefecture Maritime sent an ocean-going tug patrolling the northern part of the Ushant Channel to the scene. The stern of the Erica was holding up well, and it was a good thing, because it contained in its hull tons of fuel oil ready to disperse. The weather was calamitous, a force nine wind, twenty-five to thirty-foot-high waves, impossible to tow the wreck in these conditions. Some men volunteered to come aboard and tie up the wreck. All they could do was to prevent it from running aground on the coast. The tugboat struggled on for a whole night and into the early morning, until the stern section finally sank into the depths. Thirty miles away, on the mainland, the risks of pollution were assessed. The coast became a theater of high public officials, Minister of the Environment, Minister of Transport, President of the Development Council. All of them paraded one after the other on the beaches, powerless in front of the drama that was being prepared. At this stage, it was very difficult to determine whether the fuel oil would drift, sink, or simply stagnate. The French government, with the help of neighboring countries, launched a pumping operation to contain the oil spill, but the storm increased in intensity and the action proved insufficient. It took several months and the beginning of spring before any concrete action could be taken. The Paris Public Prosecutor's Office did not wait that long. On December 14th, an investigation was opened, entrusted to an examining magistrate and aimed at understanding the origin of the shipwreck. First taken in by the naval airbase of Lanvioc-Polmic, five members of the Erika's crew were placed in custody by the police for endangering the lives of others. The captain and his first mate were sent to the capital for questioning. The issue was determining what pushed the commander to send a distress signal in the first place, then to change his mind shortly after. Was he overzealous or under pressure from his superiors? In any case, the tanker should not have announced its stopover in Donch so late and openly lied about its damage to the maritime authorities. The latter were not exempt from reproach either. They were accused of being lax during the night of the debacle, assuming that the Erica would finish its mad course in Spain and that, from then on, the problem would no longer be their responsibility. As the saying goes, everything that happens at sea stays at sea. No, unfortunately, what was happening at sea was beginning to have repercussions on land. On December 23rd, the first oil slicks invaded the South Finisterre. Two days later, it was the Moribond, then the Loire and Lantique that were affected, and on December 27th, it was the turn of the Vendée. In a few days, 250 miles of coastline were hit by the Erica's cargo. The elected officials of the affected towns were waiting for the state to support them. Finally, the inhabitants, refusing to sunbathe in oil that summer and unable to stand idly by, began the cleanup themselves. It is as if we were witnessing a remake of the myth of Sisyphus. With each square meter of beach cleaned, the oil tide struck back and brought with it new layers of viscous tar. The Breton islands on the front line were more isolated than ever. 
The storm refused to calm down and kept the reinforcements at bay, leaving the islanders to their own devices, ill-equipped and ill-prepared. Each day, the waves deposited large cakes, an unappetizing mixture of algae and fuel oil, exhausting to extract from the sand. Most of the time, it was oily birds that were found stuck in the blackish mixture. The survivors were collected by rescue centers, run by hundreds of volunteers who worked hard to clean their feathers, feed them, rehydrate them, and send them to England or Belgium, dry and far from the misfortune. Despite their efforts, they only managed to save one-tenth of the 300,000 soiled specimens. The birds were not the only victims of the shipwreck. An entire ecosystem was affected. The fishermen were forced to stay at the quay. The oyster farmers mourned their parks. The salt marshes of Gironde reluctantly closed the locks and sat on the current annual production. Restaurant owners, hoteliers, and tourist centers were worried about the upcoming summer season. In order to alleviate the fears and to solve the drama as soon as possible, firefighters and military were deployed in the affected areas to accelerate the cleanup operation. The Minister of Economy had promised the insured that there would be no deductible higher than 1,500 francs in their contract. This is little consolation, because what people really wanted was a guilty party. After a rather dull New Year's Eve, the people of Brittany gathered en masse in Nantes and demonstrated in the street, with Total, the owner of the fuel oil lying on the coast and charterer of the Erica, in their sights. Its CEO, Thierry Desmarais, blamed the authorities in charge of ship inspection. Anxious to restore his company's image, he launched a major seduction operation aimed at consumers, but also, and above all, at the financial market. On January 6th, he gave the green light to the Littoral Atlantique mission. Private companies, paid by the oil company, were sent to the front to help clean up the beaches. Eager to ease tensions, the government was proud to set up a compensation fund for the victims, to the tune of 5 billion francs over a four-year period. All these decisions had little effect on the anger of the anti-oil spill activists. At the end of January, a study conducted by a private laboratory continued to fan the flames. The oil tanker's merchandise came from the bottom of the tank, a tenacious tar made malleable by an additive which is highly carcinogenic. The product should never have been transported, but destroyed as soon as possible to avoid any collateral damage. Unmoved, Total withheld information, refused to disclose the exact nature of its hypocardrin, and thus allowing volunteers, municipal officials, and others to get their hands dirty with impunity. So it was not the state that should pay the bills, or the citizens whose health was at risk, but the people who were most responsible for the disaster. Who exactly were they? It was the work of the investigating judge who traced them to the shipowner, Giuseppe Savaris, a young Neapolitan based in London, a financier who owned four tankers that were made available to oil companies, including the Erica. 
He had acquired it four years earlier. More a businessman than an engineer, Mr. Savaris entrusted the technical management of his ship to the company Panship, headed by Commander Antonio Palara. In addition to organizing routine checks and planning work to optimize charter capacities, this man was also the intermediary between the owner and the Italian company Rina, which was in charge of inspecting the Erica and issuing the class certificate granting the right to navigate. Officially, everything was in order. However, at the same time, the Accident Sea Investigation Office submitted a salty investigation report in which it was immediately stated that the crew had not committed any serious fault leading to the sinking. Moreover, for a tanker of this size, the sea conditions did not present any real danger. The trigger was elsewhere, unearthed in the wreck by a small remote-controlled robot equipped with two arms and a camera sent to a depth of 400 feet. Called Abisub, it was used to explore the Titanic. This was not its first descent. Although it got stuck in a corner of the Erica, requiring the intervention of one of its mechanical colleagues, it nevertheless was able to spot the rupture of an internal partition between two tanks. In other words, the ship's structure was in an advanced state of corrosion, and the cracks had spread throughout the hull before breaking. When asked about this, Giuseppe Savaris and Antonio Palara said that they had carried out all the necessary repairs in advance at a shipyard in Montenegro. From then on, the two passed the buck. Savaris complained that Polara had botched the work somewhat, while the latter deplored the lack of resources provided by the shipowner. Nonetheless, the Erica appeared to be up to standard. If not solved, its damage was concealed. By the end of March 2000, the cleaning of the oiled sectors was coming to an end. Some finishing touches kept the teams deployed until the end of the year, but the work done allowed residents to serenely welcome the initial waves of tourists during the first two weeks of July. The creeks filled up as if nothing had happened, while offshore, favorable conditions relaunched pumping operations on the Erica wreck, and 870 tons of fuel oil were recovered. After five months of prohibition, fishermen could finally resume their activities. It is estimated that the craftsmen affected by the oil spill suffered an economic loss of 7.6 million euros, covered in large part by the department and the region, which were waiting to be reimbursed by the International Oil Pollution Compensation Fund. On the occasion of the anniversary of the shipwreck, some protesters did not hesitate to cover their storefronts with black paint. Others invaded the premises of Total's famous Littoral Atlantique mission in Nantes. 95% of the beaches were now clean, but the Bretons were unable to forgive. On February 12, 2007, after seven years of investigation, the trial of the Erica sinking finally opened. The courtroom was packed with people. 101 civil parties, including the League for the Protection of Birds and numerous associations and local authorities, were present. Facing them were the defendants, no fewer than 15 individuals and legal entities, including Giuseppe Savaris, Antonio Palara, Captain Karen Mather, the Rena Company, four officers from the Prefecture Maritime, and, of course, 
Total and its Armada of Lawyers. Behind the scenes, journalists and political personalities in the running for the upcoming presidential elections were swarming, attracted by the aura of this extraordinary affair. It would be foolish not to take advantage of such a visibility. The opportunity was short-lived because, as the four months of hearings passed, the media coverage faded away, lost in a legal imbroglio that was difficult to transmit. The complex case and the exchanges on technical aspects that were difficult to understand ended up being tiresome. However, it is important to remember that the responsibility for the accident concerned all levels of the chain, the classification society, the owner, the technical manager, and the charterer. All of them overlooked the advanced age and precarious condition of the Erica. After seven months of deliberation, the verdict was announced in early 2008. The captain and the authorities were acquitted. Total was sentenced to a maximum fine of 375,000 euros, and Mr. Savarese and Mr. Polara were also ordered to pay 75,000 euros in addition to the 192,000 euros in damages to the civil parties. All the parties appealed, with Total invoking an international convention dating from the 1970s that exonerates all charterers in the event of an oil spill. However, the court confirmed the decision and increased the amount of compensation. Final attempts at relief were in vain. The appeal judgment was maintained. A bitter defeat for the unscrupulous maritime exploiters and impossible for them to escape to the open sea. The perpetrators of the Olympic bravery, Berlin, and Amoco Cadiz shipwrecks remained untouchable for a long time, sailing above the law. The Erica tragedy changed the situation and marked the end of impunity for polluters who now had to pay. For the first time in France, the existence of ecological damage was recognized, estimated at millions of euros, a figure designed to make the oil companies tremble and dissuade them from treating oil trafficking lightly. The case has become a jurisprudence, recognizing all environmental damage as a criminal offense that must be punished. In order to avoid new disasters in the future, France, in association with the European Union and the International Maritime Organization, is putting in place a set of measures to reinforce safety at sea. Vessel inspections are stricter and more regular, single-hull oil tankers are banned, and the inspection policy in ports is strengthened, as is the surveillance of shipping from the continent. The statistics speak for themselves. There were 25 oil spills per year in the 1980s, compared with only two today. If the number of accidents has drastically decreased, the maritime traffic has not stopped increasing, and despite all the precautions taken, history tends to repeat itself. On November 27, 2019, the cargo ship Karklo, flying the Iberian flag, left Sweden for Mauritania, carrying 4,000 tons of ammonium nitrate in its holes. While sailing along the French coast, the commanding officer noticed some damage and contacted authorities. Repelled by a storm, the vessel took shelter in the Bay of Saint-Bréau. In the end, a tugboat was able to keep the Karklo afloat before taking advantage of a lull to escort it safely to the port of Rotterdam, a necessary stopover for repairs. The Bretons had already put on their boots and their oil skins, 
taken out their shovels and were waiting on the beach for the next polluting slicks to come. Did you like this episode? Feel free to comment, share, and rate it. See you soon for new stories. Midnight Studio, addictive podcast creator.